Hello! Hi! Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. Welcome to Unfortunately Required Reading. Uh, it is still Chuck's Notes July, which means it's still my birth month. By what, like two days? I think I have like one more day. Yeah, I have like today and tomorrow. So a day and a half. That's yeah, pretty good. still my birth month though. Uh, so... We're back. We're we're back. You know, it's only been like a couple of days, but you know, here we are, uh, and we're covering Jean-Paul Sartre because that's what I wanted. Tori, would you like to tell the audience uh, the creative title of this that I'm exceedingly proud of? She uh, she's named it, or Amanda's named it Sartre Diem. Yep, yep. Which I have been proud of. Like I literally, like, as soon as. We decided that we're doing Sartre. I came up with that. I wrote it in my planner like a child. I wrote it in my planner so I wouldn't forget. And then when Tori made the outline, I was like, please tell me you're proud of me. I'm also wearing my shirt that says I exist without my consent. That is the perfect shirt for today. <laughs> it's a rainbow shirt that says I exist without my consent. <laughs> I feel like you need to take a picture of that. I will. I'll try to take a picture that isn't just boobs because I tend to have that problem when I'm taking photos where it's like say, that's kind of hard to do though. <laughs> that's yeah, it's a little difficult to accomplish. Uh Tori, I saw a Red Bull and I remember you mentioning your Red Bull from Costco last week. This is this is my uh my joyful Red Bull. Did I think I told everybody that story, right? You did. That's why I was okay. like, hmm, this feels familiar. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, as I mentioned to Dory before the show, I made a basically a mimosa, but with Kool-Aid and rose. And I feel like a mad genius. I saw this at a bar. Amber and I were at a, a chicken and waffles place, and they had red Kool-Aid on tap. What? Not cherry. It's red. That's the fruit punch flavor. But no one calls it fruit punch. It's red. They had red Kool-Aid like on tap. That's kind of awesome. It was amazing. And I'm like, I wonder if you could put champagne in that. And Amber and I look at each other. And it's like, that is something we would make fun of other people for doing. But if we did it, it'd be delicious. And like, that's 100% true. If I ever went into someone else's home and they served me this, reading them to death. If I do this drunk in my home, this is the greatest decision I've ever made in my life. And everyone should do it. There's a drink called a Kali Moxto, which is a Diet Coke and red wine and mm. a, with a little bit of lime. And I think it's absolutely delicious. But trying yeah. to explain it to people, they're like, why? I'm like, it's all of my favorite things in one drink. Yeah, it's very popular in Spain. Um, yeah, it's it's so weird trying to explain those like weird like cocktail things that you do, especially like when you're basically like, sad, drunken at home. And then, like, you try to share it with people, and it's like, it's a good idea, but it's weird. So, like, mine was, um, I was basically like, it was very, like, lean light, where it's like, here's a Sprite and some simply raspberry lemonade and too much gin. <laughs> and it's like, this is just my sip and drink. Don't ask Ooh. questions. I've had a long day. We had a whole thing for a while. My friend group, we had would get sweet tea vodka and um, raspberry lemonade and mix it together. Um, 
I remember getting incredibly intoxicated on that. And then the very next day, doing a 5K with my friend, I woke up, went to the bathroom, threw up, got dressed, came out and said, okay, I'm ready to go. And she's like, okay. Before <laughs> we I get mean, started, uh -huh. have I told you the story of the vomit phoenix? No. <laughs> so I started working in advertising agencies when I was like 24. Um, so basically still a kid. Um, never really had like a rebellious period because I was taking care of sick parents or sick people. So like, really, like my 20s were like my like, when people say they were crazy, like in college and in high school, that was my 20s really for me. Um, and I worked in a very like Mad Men-esque agency. It was work hard, play hard. There was a ton of casual drinking, a ton of casual misogyny. And basically like the only things we ever did for team building were drinking or eating or eating and drinking. I was part of the creative team, which everything you've ever seen about creatives and advertising agencies is true. These men have never worn a suit. They do not know how to hold a conversation, but they are brilliant wizards who are masters of their craft. Do not try to talk to them, though. It's like talking to devs. Don't ask devs questions. They do not want to talk to you. Let them be in their weird coding world. Um, but we went to this dive bar downtown. It's called Bonds. Sketchy-ass little dive bar downtown. And I'm sipping on my cider. I get another cider. There's no food in that place, but like this nacho cheese popcorn. That's important for later. This is <laughs> it's like a special tool we can use yeah, later. This is a special tool we're going to use for later. So I'm just like <laughs> fisting this nacho popcorn. Uh, I mentioned that I've never had a shot of tequila. Oh, I God. Tequila. I get a shot of vodka. I have another cider. And it's like, okay, it's getting dark and I have to go home. I don't have a car. I'm on the bus. I'm on the via bus after three ciders and two shots and no food. Now, Tori, I don't know if you've ever been on a via bus, but those things don't really stay still. Mm -hmm. I was a wobbling. I hold it together just by sheer force of will the entire via bus ride. And I'm on... I don't live here anymore, so I'm okay with uh, saying this. I was on Culebra to Bandera. If you live in San Antonio, those are some of the longest streets in the city of San Antonio. So I am all the way down one long street and all the way down another long street. Takes about 45 minutes to get home. For 45 minutes, I endure wobbling. I get to my, I get off near my apartment. I walk up. I immediately throw up <laughs> just like a cascading falling thing. And that's why it's called the vomit Phoenix because I crashed to earth immediately. As soon as I got home, uh, I changed clothes, pulled myself together. I put on inglorious bastards as you do. And I remember texting my then boyfriend and saying, I am so drunk. And uh, I remember I passed out because I started at the Monsieur La Petite thing right before Hans Landa shoots everyone in the floor. And I woke up again and I think it was right before the cinema massacre. So I was out for a while and my boyfriend was there and he's just like, you are not okay. And I'm like, I'm not okay. The next day we had a workplace uh, team building thing. And I get off my bus I am wearing sunglasses and I am power walking to the Walgreens downtown because I am not a person. 
I've never been more hungover in my life. I passed my boss's wife. <laughs> Say nothing to her. I'm on a mission. I need Pepto. I need ginger ale. And I need something for my headache. I get in to do this workplace thing. And she's like, are you, I saw you walking into the Walgreens. Are you, you looked like you were on a mission. It's like, yes, yes, I was. And I proceeded to bullshit my way through that work training day with the worst hangover of my life. But that is the story of the Vomit Phoenix. Because we're talking about hell today, I'm going to tell you my, uh, my Tennessee story. So our team back when I was in medical sales, I'm now in medical billing, completely different companies. So this mm -hmm. has been a while. We won a sales contest. Our team did the best. Keeping in mind our top like three sellers in the company were on my team and I was number 19 for the nation. So like we knew what we were doing, <clears throat> sort of. So we go to Nashville for like, because we won, we were supposed to go to Miami, but then there was a hurricane. <laughs> um, and so we get to Nashville that very first night, we're all excited. I lost track of how many bars we went to because I wasn't paying for drinks. Mm -hmm. um, our, our team leaders were paying for drinks. Mm -hmm. And so at one point in time, it's probably like one in the morning, I go, you know what, I need to go, I need to go to the hotel or I'm going to keep making bad decisions. Because I know myself, and keep in mind, I'm supposed to get married the next month. So I know better. I'm like, if I stay out here, I'm going to dance with some dude, and it's going to be weird, and I'm going to have to explain it. So I'm leaving. So it, I danced with a girl who was one of my friends. So we were okay. But mm -hmm. I walk back. I get to the hotel. I immediately, like, go to sleep. The next morning, I am so sick. I can barely sit up. And it's a work trip, so we are going to an escape room, which is a small piece of hell. But we have lunch first. I can't eat. There's no way for me to eat. So I get like a dessert, and I'm just kind of like sitting on the side. Like, I'm not really hungry. And we're walking, and I'm just like, God, if you get me out of this escape room, I'm going to be so thankful. No, no, I was in an escape room for two fucking hours two hours and it was a whole like zombie plague themed one and i'm just like if i throw up people are just going to assume that it's because there's these fake zombie bodies in here we should be fine i made it through the whole thing took a shit ton of tylenol and managed to like rise to the occasion mm -hmm. but i'm like i'm too old for that shit now <laughs> like tori why do i have an email from ted cruz in my inbox because he's a piece of shit and he's trying to get everybody to rally for him now how did he find me when did I, I don't remember signing up for this newsletter i don't know man have you seen those tiktok videos that are like what would make a better senator than i Ted sent Cruz? you one of those and it's amazing yeah okay there's no way to unsubscribe from this newsletter which is technically illegal i was gonna say that's illegal yeah there's no way to unsubscribe from this newsletter and i genuinely don't remember when I signed up for this because I never would have subscribed to a Ted Cruz newsletter. I get his because I sent a bunch of stuff through resist bot to him and John Cornyn and then just got these um, pithy emails back basically saying we don't not, care about women. Not a, not a pithy email. <clears throat> yeah, like when you get a form letter back and you're like, here's all the reasons why your plan is really dumb and you're hurting 50% of your constituents and they're like, we don't care. Uh... But we're not talking about Sartre. Uh, Tori, do you want to talk about uh, No Exit? Yes. So um, short story long. And yes, as usual, it's longer than the like actual play. Um, a man you in were Garcinia, doing so well. 
<laughs> in a weird room by a mysterious valet who has no fucking eyelids. Anyway, we realize pretty quickly that they're both in hell, and he asks the valet where all the torture devices are instead of Second Empire-style furniture, which is really ugly, including a green, like a chartreuse couch and a wine red couch next mm -hmm. to each other for some reason. Gerson said he hates the furniture and asks if all the rooms in hell are like this one. And basically, the valet is like, not really. He goes, he asks after a toothbrush. We realize Gerson really hasn't fully accepted the fact that he's not alive anymore. Mm -hmm. um, the valet points out that there's a bell if he needs anything, but the bell doesn't always work. So, like, good luck. Um, the lights also don't go out and there's no mirrors. And that's when he realizes that the valet has no eyelids. And he's like, <laughs> oh, what the hell? So he rings the bell after the valet leaves, but nothing happens. He keeps trying it, and then finally he gives up. And then right as he gives up, the door opens, and the valet brings in a woman named Inez. Mm -hmm. Inez is a trip. Um, she thinks that Garson must be her torturer. He laughs, trying to figure out how he could be mistaken for the staff since he has eyelids. It's a whole other thing. Um, yes, Inez yeah. pretty quickly that she doesn't like men. Like, at all. Like, no thank you. Mood and relatable. She also talks about how she used to watch herself in mirrors. Garson tries to be kind to her, saying that there's need that they need to be nice or courteous to each other um, mm -hmm. since they're stuck together. She says she isn't polite and points out that he twists up his mouth when he gets uncomfortable and she hates it. She tells him since they're already dead, there's no reason to be frightened. But Garson is like, oh, but isn't the torment just starting? The valet brings in a woman named Estelle and she keeps thinking she recognizes Garson, but won't say who she thinks he is. Inez, like Estelle, says she wishes she had flowers to give her. It's just like, oh, you're beautiful. I wish I had flowers for you. And she's like, yeah, they always faded really bad. Estelle has really just died of pneumonia. And she's able to see her funeral from the room. And she's upset that no one is actually crying. There's, like, one person who gives, like, two little fake tears. But that's about it. Mm -hmm. um, Inez asks if Estelle suffered when she was dying. And she said she was pretty much half conscious the whole time because she had pneumonia. So not really. Uh, we find out that Inez suffocated thanks to a leaky gas stove and Garson was shot by a firing squad. Estelle gets upset that they keep using the word dead and she asks them not to do it because it's crass. She's like, let's just say that we're absent instead. Garson realizes his wife doesn't actually know he's dead, so she just keeps going to the jail where he was executed and they won't let her in. He talks yeah. about how she got on his nerves and when he starts to take off his jacket because the room is hot... The two women ask him not to because they don't want to see him in his shirt sleeve, so he doesn't. They start to wonder why in the world they're all placed together. Estelle thinks that they should be with family and friends instead. Garson thinks it's a fluke, and Inez says nothing is left to chance, and that the room was specifically created to tor torture them. Mm -hmm. um, like, let's all say the horrible stuff we've done. Let's figure out why we're here. And Estelle is like, uh, yeah, but there's a mistake. You know, like, uh, the only thing I really did was I married someone I didn't love. But, like, it's not that big of a deal, right? You know, he's taking care of me, and, you know, he took care of my family. And the other two are like, yeah, you know, that's not really a sin. Garson <laughs> is like, I ran a pacifist newspaper, and then I refused to fight when war broke out, broke out, so I got shot by a firing squad. And they were like, oh, okay, well, that's not really a sin. And no. Inez is like, we are all lying to each other right now. We did something. We are damned, and we deserve to be in hell. Mm -hmm. And Inez listen. There's no official torture in hell. We torture each other by being together. And Garson is like, I'm not going to torture anyone. Let's just stop talking and ignore each other. Estelle can't keep from talking. She starts to think she doesn't really exist and tries to find a mirror. 
Inez offers to act as her mirror and tell her what she sees. They start bickering because Estelle is rejecting Inez's advances. Mm-hmm. And she tries to flirt with Garson instead. And Garson is like, oh my God, please just stop talking. Inez says it's impossible for her to ignore his existence. She's like, I can't stand you looking at me. You stole my face. What the fuck? Anyway, they start to tell each other everything. Gerson admits that he cheated on his wife all the time and brought women back to the house constantly, even to the point where his wife served them coffee in bed. Um, Inez says she seduced her cousin's wife when she was living with them. Her cousin ended up killing himself. And then uh, Estelle, or sorry, Inez is... uh, the girl she cheated with turned the gas stove on to kill them both. Oh yeah. Her, um, she left it on while they were sleeping. She got up, turned it on, went back to bed so that they both died. Estelle finally caves and admits she cheated on her husband, got pregnant, ran off to Switzerland with her lover and then drowned their baby right before her lover's eyes. And after she left, her lover shot himself in the face. Um, Inez decides she's refusing to accept any kindness, says she has a choice. Estelle's attractiveness is a torture for Inez. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're all going to suffer for eternity. What the fuck? This is a book I read for fun. That, that makes me nervous sometimes. <laughs> this is that a book I read nervous. for fun. So I was texting one of my, my best friends who was a philosophy major and I'm like, so I'm reading Sartre now. And he's like, mm-hmm. okay. I'm like, am I an existentialist? He's like, it wouldn't be the worst thing to be. Also that you've never thought of yourself as an existentialist until this moment. Not really. I could have told you that immediately. So one of the first things we're going to talk about is existentialism. So existentialists. There is a concept that's called essentialism, which basically is you show up on this planet with a purpose and you follow everything and you fulfill that purpose. And if you don't fulfill that purpose, then, you know, you've failed your essentialism. Existentialism is we show up on this planet. There's not really something that we need to do, but we make our own meaning and we figure it out. And uh, Sartre was really big on he has this concept uh, called bad faith. Mm-hmm. Where basically, if you just follow the crowd and don't try to figure out yourself out, you're living with bad faith. I think we're jumping the gun a little bit. Okay. So here's me flexing my almost philosophy minor. Existentialism really came out as a product after World War I uh, because you started seeing, again, death on a mass scale, death photographed, and then people starting to really question why any of this was happening so really existentialism like cynicism or modern cynicism came out as a product of world war one that's a key thing it's a fairly new philosophy two it is also heavily influenced and influential to dada and surrealism in art because of the shared theme of deconstruction so it isn't just we don't have a purpose on this earth. It's nothing fucking matters. Um, there's a School of Life video on Sartre specifically and his existentialism. And Sartre has this like great breakdown of like, dinner with your spouse. And it, um, the School of Life is brilliant. Controversy aside, the School of Life is brilliant. It says dinner with your spouse. Another animal who's who you occasionally touch genitals with sit at the carcass of a dead tree and eat dead plants and animals at a certain time when your spot on the planet is in a different place around a dying star. 
And it's like, yeah, that's dinner with your spouse. When you break it down that far, it's absurd and weird. Now, the problem with existentialism and why I keep complaining about like Alan Moore and like edgy Joker guys is that people stop there. They stop at it's absurd, nothing matters, blah, chaos. I saw Heath Ledger do a Joker and now I'm deep. No. All of the existentialists, so your big, your big three of existentialists are Camus, Kierkegaard, and Sartre. Notice that two of them are French. <laughs> and the other is just a sad Dane. The other is just a sad Dane who's doing his best. But notice the two are French. Um, Camus decides that life is absurd, so keep living. And he's probably the most optimistic of the existentialists. Uh, Sartre is not quite the most dour, but he also gives humans a lot more agency. Kierkegaard goes in a completely different direction and says... All of this is terrible. We're all waiting to die. But then in his later life, did like a 360 pivot and said, hey, have you guys heard about Jesus? I was going to say, yeah, Kierkegaard is the only one of them who still maintained a religious kind of... He didn't at first. So he... I relate to Kierkegaard a lot lot because we're really, really similar. He had a lot of people die on him very, very young. And same, fun fact, that does usually change how you feel about religion. Uh... But in his later life, he got super religious. Uh, I think because like he was, he felt like he was close to dying, and you know he didn't want to make the bad choice. Um, so that's your breakdown of existentialism. To get to Tori's point about bad faith, bad faith and radical freedom is a thing that I get why they do not teach people in high school because. So one of the banners of this show is why do we teach the things that we teach and why do we not teach the things that we teach? Bad faith, much like Descartes I think therefore I am. I don't think we teach this to high schoolers because it breaks their brains, but also it breaks their will to continue to compete in society. So do you want to talk a little bit about bad faith? Sure. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree with you in the fact that if you don't teach a bunch of high schoolers that it's important for them to compete and go to college, mm-hmm. then they're not going to do it. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars in the American um, education system mm-hmm. and go into that and mm-hmm. then eat worker bees for the rest of eternity. And like, and it not mean anything. And it, and it not mean anything. That's the biggest thing that I always keep coming back to. Because I used to be that person who's like, oh, yeah, everyone should go to college. It's important. Look at my degree. Yeah, I'm proud of my degree. I'm proud of what I've done. But the galaxy is not going to exist one day. We're all going to die. I can't take it with me. It doesn't fucking matter. But bad faith. So the concept of bad faith, as we were kind of talking a little bit about, um, is you show up and you continue to do the same things that you're told to do over and Mm -hmm. over and over and over again and you don't look for your own meeting um one of the descriptions of it was say that you are a waiter at a restaurant and you absolutely hate the work you do you get Mm -hmm. no joy from it whatsoever but you make a paycheck and you pay your bills and you just continue on like this until you die and then you realize you've wasted your entire life well Um, in sartre in sartre's example of the waiter was not just that you show up but like defining your meaning by that it was 
this is a waiter who's clearly trying too hard. We've all seen that waiter. That guy at Olive Garden who's trying way too hard for that tip. Which, I mean, I get it. But you, we've all seen that guy. We've all seen that waiter. And, and but yet then... Most of us have been that guy at some point in time. Yeah, most of us have been that guy in some form of our lives. But, like, to ground it to that example, we've all seen that waiter. We know exactly who that waiter is. I guarantee you he works at Olive Garden. <laughs> he probably works at Olive Garden. Uh, but then in his private life hates it wishes he could do something different and what Sartre teaches you in that is that one capitalism is the enemy which is why we don't teach this to children Sartre really hated capitalism there's some great photos of him and Che <laughs> just like hanging out like there's fun fact there's a lot of photos of Sartre because he didn't die that long ago there's like photos and videos of Sartre and it's amazing um and he, like, he's just hanging out with people. It's amazing. Um, but one, he blamed capitalism for everything. Two, bad faith is more of an individual problem than a societal problem. That it is your job to break the simulation. Which I have some feelings about being a black person. Because it's not easy to break the simulation. <laughs> It can be incredibly difficult. <laughs> so while bad faith is incredibly freeing and liberating, sometimes too freeing, um, I'll have moments every once in a while. Um, oh, analogy. There was, um, I think it was Mark Cuban did an interview where he said he reads Fountainhead by Ayn Rand. And sometimes mm -hmm. he has to stop reading it and he gets too pumped up which is such a douchey dude bro thing. If you're reading Fountainhead and getting an erection, I don't understand you. I need you to know that one of the red flags that started to pop up in my early 20s and I stopped doing these guys, if they said that Ayn Rand was like their favorite if, author. It, yep. That has been on my list for years. If any guy says, oh, I really love Ayn Rand. You know why? Because they usually suck in bed because they're selfish lovers. I mean, they're also usually virgins. Let's be real. <laughs> let's be real. They suck in bed because they're fucking incels. Let's be realistic. <clears throat> but any guy that wants to mansplain Ayn Rand to me, I eagerly await you being wrong. Please. I've been preparing for this moment my entire life. Uh, <laughs> but Sartre is that for me. Is every once in a while I'll re-up on my Sartre and it's like, oh fuck, I can do anything. Uh, which ties us back to also, I have continued my Kanye West uh, brain rot. Oh, God. <laughs> Kanye West brain rot plus Sartre is kind of scary. I like, I don't even know what to do. Is this like when I had my religious breakdown last October? Yes. Okay. Yes. This do is I need to send you snacks or? No, I'm eating. Coupons for therapy? Like uh, from <laughs> Fleabag? No, I'm good. Um, <laughs> have you seen Fleabag? Yes, I have. I love it. <laughs> I'm so excited it's getting a third series. I am too. But um, I totally get why we don't teach Sartre to children. One, it would break their brains. Um, I remember taking a high school philosophy class and we were talking about the Matrix, as you do. And our teacher was a douchebag and was like, that's the problem with the Matrix is you wouldn't know it's a simulation. 
And you can just like see kids in the class just like, I can't prove anything anymore. And I don't know there, where I am. There's a movie that just came out, a documentary last year, I think it was. It's called The Glitch in the Matrix. Time is no meaning. Um, mm -hmm. And it's basically all of these, these people talking about how they truly believe that it's a simulation and that they figured out that if they focus on particular aspects of the simulation, they can mm -hmm. game it to their, their desires. And I'm like, the ROI. I was gonna say, I'm pretty sure that's just called intention. And that's what witches work with too. So <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. You guys are doing what you've reverted to doing witchcraft. What the fuck? Witchcraft and, uh, NFTs. Oh, speaking of which, fun side story. This guy I went on one date with like seven years ago mm -hmm. just messaged me on Facebook the other day and he's like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, he's, like, con he's ContraPoints. And I was like, you are either reaching out to me because you want to get in my pants and I'm very married or you're trying to get me into an MLM or an NFT scam. And so I didn't respond. And then I looked at his profile and all it is is advertisements for him being an NFT bro. And I'm like, oh, no, we're no longer friends on Facebook. How did that happen? I saw a shirt that says, yeah, I'm into NFTs and it says nice fucking tits. I want that shirt. I um, There's a two-hour video by Dan Olson of Folding Ideas, who I love. And he does a two-hour video on NFTs. And there was a guy on LinkedIn. LinkedIn is full of crypto bros. And he's like, I would love to tell you more about crypto. And I just sent him that video. <laughs> it's like, this explains all of the reasons why I will not be doing what you say. There was a whole thing that just came out it was a i think on netflix i'm trying to remember the name of it since i just watched it my brain doesn't like to hold on to facts anymore but it was about um how this one guy started a thing to sell bitcoin in canada yes. and he made a ton of money and then he died with all the the coins and stuff or whatever mm -hmm. all the access coins so nobody could get it mm -hmm. but like it was a whole thing of whether or not he was actually still alive. I think it was called, no. I don't even remember anymore. I've watched way too much crap. I was like, it can't be the puppet master. That's something else. Anyway, it was a thing that I watched. And then I've also been watching the most hated man on the internet, which literally everything that Hunter Moore did was sextortion and sex trafficking. Yeah, we don't have time to talk about that, unfortunately. No, no. Anyway, uh, back to our regularly <laughs> scheduled program. You can see, like, the very, very faint reason come back to my eyes after drinking rosé too fast. And it's like, we don't have time to talk about that right now. So one of the things that also point that gets pointed out a lot in this play is that there are no mirrors. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the characters is very upset because... She can't see herself in the mirror, so she can't determine that she, you know, she doesn't have that controlled ability to look at herself mm -hmm. and see, like, okay, I'm pretty still, or I still have a face, or I'm still who I am. Um, so they have to either determine internally if they're still the same person that they were or who they are, or rely on others to give them that information. Mm -hmm. And it's 
maddening to everyone in that room. Yes. Um, I am pretty detached from my uh, meat mecca. So the idea of not having mirrors doesn't really scare me. But also, like, having no way to prove my existence is terrifying. So there's a weird, like, absolute horror to this story that a lot of people have a hard time grappling with. This one's a tough read. Um, most of Sartre's work is a bit of a tough read. Uh, there's one about a guy on a train who has, an egg, who has like, a full like, existential breakdown over train because he doesn't understand what a chair is anymore. And the play is just him freaking out over not understanding chair. Because that's what Sartre does. So, one of the, there, there's a lot of things that aren't present in the room. Um, like, and it's, it's, it's funny because it's all like minor inconveniences, which gives me this flashback to The Good Place so hard. Like, mm. you know that they read this while doing work on The Good Place. My husband's mm. like, no, I don't think. And I'm like, no, trust me. They read they every book on philosophy they could get their hands on. Um, so the whole concept of it, hell not being like really a place of physical torment, mm -hmm. but just, you know, it's a little too hot in that room and no one wants mm -hmm. you to take off your jacket. Mm -hmm. The valet is perfectly nice, but he has no eyelids and he can just stare at you the whole time without blinking. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't have a toothbrush because you're not alive anymore and they're going to make fun of you for asking for a toothbrush. Um, there is furniture in the room that you can't stand, but you can't change it. And you also can't lift that statue that you hate so much. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of like the whole thing of, in, in the good place, why there were so many frozen yogurt stands, it's because frozen yogurt wasn't as good as ice cream, but it wasn't terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's literally it. Like, that's literally, that's it. If you want a crash course on um, philosophy and you want to just, you know, enjoy a TV show, The Good Place is amazing. It um, is. It really is. They actually had a philosopher on staff. Mm -hmm. which is amazing because it's really hard to get a job with a philosophy degree. It, it is if you don't know where to look. I say that with love to my friend, Matt. Matt, if you're He's listening. He's a video game wanna... guy, okay? It's fine. It's Matt, fine. if you want to come on the show and defend your philosophy degree, I'm more than happy to have an Aristotelian dialogue with you. We can talk about the cave. Oh my god. Open so open invitation to Matt. If you want to come on the show, we'll have a full Aristotelian dialogue, except for the fact that I'm not white or a man, so they wouldn't listen to me. <sighs> I'm not wrong. <laughs> you want to talk about the most famous line from this play? Hell is other people. So something that I do want to point out, and we, we kind of went back and forth on our comments too about this. Mm -hmm. Hell of other people doesn't just mean other people suck. They do, okay. but that's not all it means. They do, but that's not the point. It's not supposed to just be like, oh, I'm around another person. This day mm -hmm. blows. Mm -hmm. It's more um, how you are observed by other people and how you internalize that observation or 
you know, how you respond to it. Absolutely. Um, I never... Sorry. sorry, go ahead. Too many cherries, not enough throat. <laughs> that sounds like a, that sounds like a you problem. <laughs> no, we're good. I got it. Got to reclaim that title of throat goat. I don't know. I'm done. I'm yes, done. I'm done. Have um, I told you about the pageant sash that I want to make? No. So there was a joke on RuPaul's Drag Race with one of the queens who was kind of like, she was known to be a bit of a flirt. And she says, I won Miss Dick Pig Intercontinental. <laughs> and I want a pageant sash that says Miss Dick Pig Intercontinental. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! This is what you signed up for. You can't get rid of me now. I live in the, oh, I live in the floors. Oh, good. Is that where those squeaks are at night? Do you want to talk about the magical opossum you sent me yesterday? The what now? What did the I send you? The magical opossum. So is I've been suffering. No, I literally we talked about this. So I have been going through SSRI withdrawal which do not recommend zero out of 10 experience not fun oh, okay and my I, I was at work and my boss comes up to me she's like hey are you okay and i did that like wobbly smile thing where i'm like i'm great and like obviously not great and she's like go home you can work from home it's gonna be okay so i came home it's like nine in the morning and i'm pulling into my parking spot and there's a possum in the middle of the Christian daylight. And I got on my phone. I sent Tori a voice message. So she knew that I was alive. And I said, I'm assuming that this is you checking in on me. I have been suffering from SSRI withdrawal, but I'm home. I'm safe. I'm eating. I'm having water, but I appreciate you checking in on me. <laughs> I forgot. I sent you my possum avatar. <laughs> like, <laughs> Like, I, I drive in and there's just a whole ass possum. And it's like, I'm going to assume that this is Tori, which means I'm going to tell her that I'm doing all right. Uh, but yeah, SSRI withdrawal, the worst thing. Don't recommend this at all. Don't know who decided, hey, those people that already have a hard time with uh, their moods and stuff, you know what we should do? Let them go psychotic the minute they don't have this. That's what they need. It's pretty fucking awful. Why do they do that? Who who was in a room and decided this is the move we should make? The American healthcare system? Uh, hey, if they're dead, we don't have to take care of them anymore. Dies quietly. Uh, I also bought a bunch of cookies from Crumble and they have Shark Week cookies. So it was like a sugar cookie with blue frosting and gummy sharks. And that was some lovely serotonin. Oh, that was some very, very nice serotonin. So just me sad and depressed eating shark week cookies because the world is the world is so weird, Tori. It's pretty crazy. It's all pretty crazy. But yeah, so hell is other people means less that like, Oh shit, there is another person here. Because a lot of people just stop there. 
that's my biggest gripe with existentialism is that I feel like a lot of people stop short, just like men tend to do when they're having sex. They stop short. Oh, it's perfect. And I'm laughing. Like they crying. stop. Like they stop, but they're missing the point. It's like hell is other people. That means people are bad, but you are people. That's not. And I I don't know what specifically about existentialism has been really co-opted by cishet dude bros i mean i know what part but all of it but like there is this like weird part of existentialism that is really one very feminist because it's egalitarian um we're going to talk about sartre's personal life where he was unabashedly a feminist um camus i guess was in that feminist camp where guys say that they're feminists but they actually just mean that they're whores like remember that like party rock era where it's like free breast exam i think camus was that kind of guy you're laughing because I'm right. I'm laughing because otherwise I cry. <laughs> but I but I'm right. I think absolutely Camus would have been dressed like one of the singers from LMFAO with a shirt that says free breast exams. Camus would have done that. Uh and Kierkegaard was just an incel. <laughs> Kierkegaard was just an incel, but he didn't do any like, of the murdering. You leave Thorin out of this. Yeah. Kierkegaard was just an incel. He didn't do any of the murders, but, like, he definitely had, like, an edgy YouTube channel. But then he, like, pivoted where he did, like, a goodbye video. But then, like, in six months he came back. But he, like, rebranded as, like, a Christian vlogger. You know what? I really just want you to write, like, a modern <laughs> philosophy take on all of this. Because I'm right! Like, that's literally what Kierkegaard did. The worst part is technically they are modern. They yeah, I mean sure, Kierkegaard like, is modern. Sartre didn't die until 1980. Yeah, he's pretty modern. But like that's literally what Kierkegaard did is that he was like an edgy like oh my god, it's a a cod who's just like he probably was like full like manosphere. He was probably gamergate. He probably did all those things and then just like he took a break and I guess like he watched some contrapoints and got de-radicalized and now he's like a trans mask feminist. And he wants to just talk about Jesus. Write it down. Go publish it on Amazon. <laughs> That's what happened. Is In six months, Kierkegaard comes back as like a demi boy who's a third wave feminist. And he's also super like crunchy and into Jesus. Do, do we want to talk about our, our other boy here for a little bit? What is what is Sartre wearing at the mall in 2000? I still think he's wearing a, a jacket. Wearing the... Um, like a jacket. The professor jacket. I think he'd shop at Gap, even though he's like 18. Is this going to be like when they adapt Wuthering Heights on MTV for high school? Yes. Okay. Yeah, Sartre, I'm guessing, is that person who, like, shops at Banana Republic despite being unemployed. And it just goes on like this. That's my favorite part. 
listen, you accepted me years ago into your life. These yeah, are the consequences no. of your actions. <laughs> I've been on a I deep think... dive. Yes. Oh, I need. So I am fully caught up on Stranger Things, and I'm on TikTok yes. too often. So when you said that, all I can hear is you need to understand that there are consequences for your actions. Literally. Literally. Like, <laughs> you let me in the house years ago. I'm here now. I'm very fucking weird. I mean, very, very with? I yeah, got I'm very... on the shelf behind me. What? <laughs> One of those signs I gave you. I'm very fucking weird. I'm super fucking weird. Uh, did you see the holiday edition Plague Doctor and Plague Nurse that I sent you? I did. They're so cute. Squishables, sponsor us. I have so many. They're going to take all my money because I pre-ordered Krampus, I pre-ordered the Jersey Devil, and I pre-ordered Mothman. I, I'm thinking about getting Mothman. Are they the ones that did Cerberus a while back and it's yeah. still sold out? Yeah. I want that so bad. Do you want me to tweet at them? They it- follow me. They follow me on Twitter. You should be like, hey. You want me to do you want me to use my Twitter power and see if I can get them to restock Cerberus? Yes. This is how you use Twitter power. You don't yell at creators. You quietly and politely ask, hello company that I know is not listening. May I please have so, one servant of Hades? So yeah, let's talk a little bit about Jean-Paul Sartre. Um, if you say Jean-Paul Sartre, I'm gonna hurt you. I say Sartre because that's how she says his name. Sure. Okay. So he was born June 21st, 1905. His dad died when he was two. So we didn't really know his dad. He was like their only kid. Mm -hmm. Um, And he was super close to his mom, like really respectful of her, really loved her. And then she remarried when he was 12. And so that kind of boop. And he was Um, very mad. He was very mad about it. Um, he had a wandering eye. There's a long for like official term for it, but I don't feel like dealing with it. Um, and so he had extremely heavy glasses and you had a really interesting point about this. I did. Um, so uh, basically like he and others kind of assumed that it was like a weird, like prophetic thing, but like he could see things differently because of his crazy eye. Um, and a lot of other philosophers around him, because I think you have to keep in mind that he was a contemporary to a lot of people. Like, he knew Camus, which we're going to talk about in a second. Like, he was contemporary to a lot of great thinkers. And a lot of other people were like, oh, yeah, like, his crazy eyes let him, like, see in two places at once. And, like, I thought that was kind of a neat point. He was always super self-conscious about it. So it's kind of nice to think that, like, other people around him were more like, hey, you're kind of magic because your eyes are weird. What's interesting about that, too, is you see that kind of thing, especially in, like, Celtic mythology and, like, Mm -hmm. Norse mythology, that if you have a difference like that, like, something with your eye or your hand, usually it becomes a plot point in a saga. Yeah, um, and there's some people who have varying levels of feelings about that. Um, There's a great The Take video about, like, disabilities and stuff on screen, where some people really love having that representation and other people are like, I really hate this and it's ableist. I am not physically disabled. Um, so I don't have any opinions on that. Uh, but yeah, there are some interesting conversations. I also watched the TikTok about how games still don't program in disability. 
that is one of the reasons that we need Matt to come on this show is because the game that he has designed is focused on making it so every different player can play. Folks with disabilities I, and things like that. That's yeah, like, Matt, if you're listening, you can come on the show. You sound like a pretty neat guy. I feel like I need to make him listen to the show now because I don't think he does. And then I'm going to get a text message later being like, I listened to your show. Don't be an ass. I love that that would be like, I listened to your show. What the fuck is wrong with you? Every once in a while, my aunts will be like, can we find what, what show are you on? And it's like, you cannot listen. Oh, oh Cerberus my. is in stock right now. Ooh, I'm buying it right now. Oh, no, never mind. He's out of stock. I oh, lied. No. Um, I got all um, excited. It's okay. Yeah, my mom, every once in a while, like, we have this conversation. And I'm like, you can listen to my Texas podcast. You cannot okay. listen to my other podcast. So and she's lying. like, The mini Cerberus is out of stock. The regular size Cerberus is low stock. So if you want to get him, I'd get him now. Oh no, I have to buy it right now. He's 15 inches. He's a good size boy. He's a good boy! I'm sending you a link. Oh so, cool, I'll just steal it from this then. Yeah, so I'm going to delete my tweet to Squishables. Because I was going to use my power. But the, the regular size Cerberus is on sale. Like you can get him. There's not a lot. It's the mini that is out of stock. You know what's going to happen is I'm going to get this and my kid's going to steal it from me. I mean, Squishable, not a sponsor. I like you much more than Squishmallows. Please sponsor this show so I can keep buying Squishables. Uh, I really, really like all of your stuff. Please, please sponsor the show. I want the Squishable chicken. There's a little hen. I want, they have a pigeon coming out. They have a pigeon? They have a pigeon. I really want the pigeon, Tori. Is that, is that a hint? No, well, I don't think you can buy it yet, but I also have money. I can, I can get the pigeon. Uh, Squishables, please, please sponsor us. Matt, come on the show, unless you think I'm weird. If you think I'm weird, please don't say anything. <laughs> I'm gonna laugh because it'll probably be like, wait, what happened? I'll be like, I don't know. I don't know how you suddenly got mentioned on this show at all. We got, oh, there we're getting a squishable opossum. What? Yeah, it's in process. They're making an opossum. I don't even I don't even know how to deal with this. They're also making a hippocampus, like an accurate hippocampus. <laughs> Squishable sponsor us. Uh so Sartre wore heavy glasses, had a wandering eye. Uh he was one of the big three of existentialism. Are there other existentialists? Yes. Do they matter? No. Do we care? Not really. Uh, go read some Camus, read some Kierkegaard, read some Sartre or Sartre. I don't like Sartre because it just reminds me of like the Flash. So I'm going to tell you right now. I, yes. But um, I absolutely love, love, love mm -hmm. that um, 
he got a Nobel Prize and he was like, nah, I'm good, fam. Yeah, like that's, that is incredibly Sartrean. Also, I sent you a link for Squishable Nessie. Oh. Okay, Squishable. so I ordered it. It's on its way. Squishable. And now I gotta get mad at PayPal for something. Uh, so, yeah, he declined the offer saying a writer should not be allowed to turn himself to be turned into an institution, which, considering death of the author and everything, soft agree. So, I really want to talk about his relationship with Simone de Beauvoir, because... Do you want to talk did. about his weird incel stuff with Camus? Yes. Can I talk about mine first? Yes, please. So I can be cute for a minute. Yes. Okay, so they, they met in college, and they were best friends. He was, like, at the top of the class, and she was, like, number two. And they mm -hmm. were constantly competing with each other. Mm -hmm. She was a killer author, and he was a killer author. And so they became best friends, and then they were like, you know what, let's turn this romantic. But also, it's an open relationship, because we're both feminists, and I don't want to get married or have kids. Mm -hmm. And they lived like that for the majority of their lives. And mm -hmm. uh, at one point in time, like, the later part of their lives she lived in a place that was like right down the street from him in Montparnasse and mm -hmm. uh, he was on the 10th floor of this one building and he would go to her house all the time and she, he had his own separate bedroom there but every morning they would like go and they would write at their own separate homes and they would do what they needed to do mm -hmm. and then they would like hang out together and mm -hmm. that is an ideal relationship it is it really is but I mean, I know there were there were bad sides to it too, and there were a lot of things that happened. But interestingly enough, the way where his house was, it looked over at Montparnasse Cemetery, mm -hmm. and so he was like, "That's where I want to be buried." And his family was, um, I think they were in like Pierre Lachaise, and he's like, "I don't want to be buried there. Please don't bury me there." So they ended up burying him in Montparnasse uh, temporarily, then cremating him. Where is he now? On someone's shelf? Uh, I don't know. Let's see what the Wikipedia has to say. Uh, is Ash reburied at a permanent site in Montparnasse? Okay, thank uh, God. I'm like, like, where do they put him? <laughs> I got scared. So he ended up dying because uh, there were a lot of things. First of all, he had a tendency to work at what they call a merciless pace. Mm -hmm. um, he also used amphetamines. He had a high, severe hypertension. He was almost became completely blind, and he was a notorious chain smoker. Um, he ended up dying because he had what is it, edema of the lung, mm -hmm. in April of 1980. And uh, the the best part is the reason he didn't want to be buried at Père Lachaise Cemetery is because that's where his mom and stepfather were buried. Mm -hmm. Man had like fifty thousand Parisians show up. For his funeral procession. He did. That like, doesn't happen for philosophers. Mm -hmm. French. Uh, he wrote a biography of Gustave Flaubert, who wrote Madame Bovary, which I think is amazing. So if you want to cry, yes. and I, I, I wouldn't recommend it if you don't want to cry, there is a book that um, Simone de Beauvoir wrote about him called mm -hmm. i think it's called i have it on my kindle right now adieu and the introduction is basically like 
this is the one book of mine that you won't you won't read before it's published and it's just heartbreaking because her whole thing is like you're in the ground and we are never going to see each other again because mm-hmm. they're all like existential thing where they're like that was it so anyway i'm going to write about the last 10 years of your life would you like to hear uh what sartre's words were when he said he'd like to be how he'd like to be remembered in 1975 yes i would like people to remember nausea my plays no exit the devil and the good lord and then my two philosophical works more particularly the second one critique of dialectic reason then my essay on Genet, saint Genet. if these are remembered that would be quite an achievement and i don't ask for more as a man if a certain jean-paul sartre is remembered I would like people to remember the milieu or historical situation in which I lived, how I lived in it, in the terms of all the aspirations which I tried to gather up within myself. Also, if you want to be incredibly bummed out, Van Gogh's last words always hit me. Do you not know what Van Gogh's last words were? No, I've probably forgotten through self-preservation or just the fact that I always remember Oscar Wilde's to keep my brain from crying. The the wallpaper and I are in a battle and only one of us will win. Uh, He said this in French, uh, but the translation is the sadness will last forever. And then he died. Oh, uh, in French, it's a little bit more poetic. Um, yeah, let's he stay durera toujours, but the sadness will last forever. Where he'll where his last words after a self inflicted gunshot. That's fucking awful. Well, some people say it wasn't self inflicted. There's a BuzzFeed Unsolved episode saying that maybe he was murdered. Uh, so there's some conjecture that he did not commit suicide. Uh, I emphasize conjecture. He's dead. We can't ask him. <laughs> he's he's dead. There were no cameras in that field. We don't know what happened. Not uh, even in the Doctor Who episode. How dare you bring Doctor Who into this? Listen, I'm still hurt that Bernard Cribbins is dead, okay? I know he was 93. I get it, but it's still like Grandpa, okay? <laughs> oh, also, so my point is... Uh, he and Camus uh, were like kind of rivals, but in the way that like Harry Potter and Draco Malfoy are rivals, it really is another like Hemingway and Fitzgerald moment, but French and existential. Where you so have they have sex with each other? Like what? <laughs> that is not confirmed. In my Wait, fantasy, that's a theory. I don't think it's a theory. No. <laughs> what the hell in my fan fiction yes in your fan Uh, fiction in my fan fiction yes but like Camus was like the Chad and you know Sartre was just like eh but like he wore a lot of very nice clothes he loved designer clothes there are some photos of him turning looks it's his Luke the way that the way that he'd always like to be remembered. Look at that outfit he served. Like it's RuPaul's Drag Race. I don't think. I always wonder, because every once in a while I'll listen back to this show and I'll realize I've said something absolutely insane, like Alexander the Great being a pillow princess. 
<laughs> and while I've never thought that I'm wrong, like I'm absolutely that like smug cat with a knife being held to its neck. That's a photo of me. I have sometimes occasionally wondered if anyone could hear me. Do they think that I'm terrible for saying this? <laughs> I don't know, man. And it's a fun thought, if not a little terrifying, but it is a fun thought. <laughs> to every once in a while be like, huh, I wonder if any of them could hear me. Would they think that I'm just a terrible monster? Or would they say, good points are being made here? I can see how you drew this conclusion. Uh, we have some resources for you. Most of them are the School of Life, which again, controversy aside, is still very, very nice. What is the controversy? Because I don't really know. Uh... You know what? I honestly don't even remember. I just remember for some reason uh, people really, really liked, like liked bashing it for a while. So I'm going to admit that I don't fully know. That was the sound of me doing a quick Google. Okay. The School of Life isn't criticized for its inaccurate representations of philosophers and its weak philosophical arguments. Uh, there's a Reddit thread, of course, like r slash philosophy of School of Life. Basically, I think a lot of people, I'm going to go ahead and speak from my own perspective. Yeah, they do fudge some of what philosophers have said and what their intention is. But I think School of Life, more than anything, has done so much more good. Because I haven't seen other channels at the time that they were talking about complex PTSD. I haven't heard other channels at the time that they were talking about pure OCD. I have not seen other channels at the time that they were and you keep hearing me preface this because yes people are now but at the time that they were people weren't i have not seen channels talk about this stuff in the way that they had so even if they're presenting weak philosophical arguments sure even if some of their little history is a little fuzzy sure i watched the complex ptsd episode again recently and I started crying because even though I know I have CPTSD, I've had that diagnosis for a while to be reminded to feel like someone has just taken a picture of me and has glimpsed into my soul and worded it in a way that felt, have you ever felt very called out by a video Tori? Especially like on TikTok where it's like, why are you in my house? Where I think it was like in the CPTSD video where it says, you might not consider yourself suicidal, but you are so tired of the thought of living that you simply think you don't want to anymore. And it's like, I am in this photo and I do not like it. Uh, so whatever the controversies there might be, I... And also, their talk about generational trauma... And how trauma impacts the body was something that at the time people were not talking about. Because one thing, and you're seeing this a lot, have you been reading the discourse about, oh, depression isn't caused by a chemical imbalance? Have you been reading that discourse? Mm -mm. So a study came out basically saying that serotonin, that um, depression is not caused by a chemical imbalance. We have always taught and been told that depression is an issue where the brain doesn't produce enough serotonin. 
Right. That's what I've always been told. That is not true. It is not a chemical imbalance issue. What it is, is that there was an incident that caused your brain to rewire how those feelings are processed. It's not chemical. It's psychological. Yay, childhood trauma. Right. So instead of treating depression like it is a physical condition, which people have been, is saying, oh, you have depression, throws Zoloft, throws Xanax, throws, you know, affects her. Yes, that is good and that is helpful. But without the context of therapy, without the context of changing your life, without the context of being better, if you're suicidal and you get on the antidepressants, there is no guarantee that you'll be less suicidal because it's not a chemical imbalance. More serotonin doesn't fix bad thoughts. I got better because SS, I'm on an SNRI, helped me be less down to where I could accept help. But without help, I'd still be back at that same place. So I'm glad that we're rewriting that idea that of depression, but people again are stopping short. They're just saying, oh cool, it's made up. Everyone who's sad is a fucking grifter and none of your problems are real, fuck you. I'm gonna throw my antidepressants into the ocean. No, that's not what they're saying. It can still help, but what we can't do is continue to give antidepressants as a panacea and ignore things like cognitive behavioral therapy and other things like that. That's what the chemical imbalance theory is saying. Not take your antidepressants and shake them into the closest body of water and just have a bunch of hyperactive snapping turtles, I guess. Yeah, don't do that. That's, that's a bad call. I'm just trying to imagine like a bunch of Xanax being given to a snapping turtle. He's vibing. He's vibing. Uh, So there's a lot of videos uh, from the School of Life. Also, there's Crash Course Philosophy, which talks about existentialism. Uh, Tori, you mentioned this earlier, but you you didn't have to read this book, did you? Mm -mm. I had no idea what the heck this was until you were like, hey, guess what? (laughs) Me, I kicked the door down and said, hey, we're reading Sartre. And I was like, okay that's basically yeah that's what happened i kicked the door down and was like we're reading this deal with it uh i just called that your birthday month yes uh i read this for fun because i am well adjusted yeah i am well adjusted and i know what i'm doing i'm perfectly stable don't tell my psychiatrist I'm doing fine. Uh, Tori, would you like to tell uh, the listeners at home what we're reading next? We are reading 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Yes. Uh, it is August, almost, which, where did the time go? I don't know. I'm, like, really uncomfortable. You heard me on the last podcast. I was already aging myself up. You were. You were. Um... I decided that we we're going to do this book after I did a deep dive into Emmett Till. Oh, God. No, I'm not okay. 
I, was I did a deep that. dive into <laughs> Emmett Till and George Stinney again. Do I have to take the internet away from you? Can you do that? No. Do you have that power? Call your internet provider. Let's hey, say, like, like, internet. I, like I'm a child. I need the internet revoked for this address. No, do you remember like having people taking care of you being like, no, you don't get to use the internet. I remember. I remember. But um, no, I was, I don't remember what I was watching. Oh, I was trying to re-educate myself because, you know, we have that whole thing where Emmett Till's accuser lied and we all know she lied. She's been lying. Uh, and that came up again. And I realized that it's one of those stories that like I knew, but I didn't know. I knew who Emmett Till was. I knew it was bad. I didn't know recently how bad. And it's bad. Uh, Isn't there a thing right now where they're trying to go after her or her family yes. or something? Yeah, they're trying to go after her because she lied. Like, she, she lied. And the guys who did it said they killed him. But they couldn't be prosecuted because of double jeopardy. Which, sure. Uh, it's one of those things that, you know, when... Especially, like, in this current time of existence, when people of color and queer people are like angry but oftentimes quieter in this because i've seen this especially like poster of v wade where it's like where are all the black people standing up it's like we've been standing up we've we done been standing y'all now are just standing we've been standing and um crash course black american history which i still think is one of the greatest crash courses said he he quoted someone who said we appreciate no this was a time this was a time thing no i am like it was crash course black american history that we need the photographs of these things because otherwise we forget how horrible the violence is and that emmett till would s still probably be alive if he wasn't murdered he'd be 80. he'd probably still be here to be perfectly honest and that was taken from him violently um, also, there's a lot of movies coming out about him, like, and I question a lot of the intentionality of these movies, because part of the point is that we don't know who he was until that horrible thing happened, and we don't really know a lot about him. That's kind of the point of the tragedy, but that's what got me to think about uh, 100 Years of Solitude. Also because there's a Crash Course episode on it. And magical realism is not something that we've covered a lot on this show. And I love magical realism. I have feelings. <laughs> I have varying levels of feelings. But um, we'll be back in August to talk about magical realism and 100 Years of Solitude. Uh, Tori, would you like to tell the good people where they can find us as I order McDonald's before my white hegemony appointment? We are all over the internet because, of course, we are. Mm -hmm. um, we're on social media at Unfortunately Required Reading on Facebook, Unfortunately mm -hmm. are on Twitter, Unfortunately Required on Instagram, and UnfortunatelyRequiredReading.com. And if you want to email us, UnfortunatelyRequiredReading at gmail.com. Mm -hmm. uh, I am trying to get back onto Twitter. I have been busy. Excuse me. I am sorry, but I am making my way downtown 
walking fast. <laughs> Pass and you're homebound. <laughs> Am I oh proud of myself? Probably too proud of myself. I went yesterday to go get an eye exam because I haven't had one in four years and to like order mm-hmm. new glasses because I lost my glasses. And I'm standing there at the counter and um, wake me up by Evanescence comes on uh, or bring me to life. And it's on and this girl is just like singing it under her breath like she doesn't realize she's doing it. And I'm like, it's okay. It's our generation's anthem. And she's laughing and she goes, yeah, my daughter sings it. So I, that's how I know I did well. I go, yeah, basically when your kid starts listening to your music, you're like, oh, thank God. I think I'd be horrified if my kids ever started listening to my music because it's like, oh, you want to listen to Mindless Self-Indulgence and Good Charlotte? Oh, God. Yeah. Self-indulgence? No. I listened to so much. High school Amanda was fueled by Ramune, Pib Extra, Hershey's Chocolate, Hawaiian Sweet Rolls, Pocky, and Mindless Self-Indulgence. I was a Nine Inch Nails and Stabbing Westward kind of girl. Also Dresden Dolls later on, but... Like, I, I fully acknowledge I was not okay. I was not good. <laughs> now I just want you to start singing, I'm not okay. <laughs> there, was, there was a TikTok about how, um, I think it was Black Parade, how Black Parade was, sent, was sung. And like the first is like, okay, I want you to sing this song almost impossibly soft through this door. And then for the second verse, I want you to scream and growl this song through the door. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that's it. That'll work. That's what happened. Uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, the world is still very much on fire. If you are a texting, you are frustrated with the current system. There is a perfectly good Beto O'Rourke standing in the corner, hoping that you open the door for him. He's like, please, sir. There's a perfectly good Beto who's standing right here hoping for your attention because uh, we, we can't have more Abbott. Uh, if you're frustrated at Ted Cruz, I heavily encourage uh, angry words on Twitter. So did you see that thing this week about the girl who went head to head with Matt Gates And won! I love her so much. Like I'm So proud of her. Um, so for those who don't know, Olivia Juliana, she got mocked on t- uh, Twitter by Matt Gates, who is a piece of shit and a human trafficker. Anyway, so he starts doing this whole thing of like, oh, you know, all uh, female protesters are like big fat, mm-hmm. like the whole thing for, um, and she's like, um, first of all, you have a forehead like Beavis or Butthead, like mm-hmm. what is wrong with you? And then continues to just, mock him on Twitter and raising a million dollars for abortion mm-hmm. access. Like, she's like, keep it coming, man. Keep throwing the vitriol. I'll just keep making more money for women. Yep. Uh, this is what we do. This is where we are at our best. Um, I know it's hard, but things only get harder if we sit down. And right now we all got to stand up. Uh, Remember, if John Paul Sartre can be a feminist, you can too. <laughs> Our next t-shirt design. <laughs> if John Paul Sartre can be a feminist, you have no excuse. Uh, stay safe out there. 
We will see you next month. Bye.